Sponsored by Marriage Supply. Marriage if Supply. If you are married, what's one of the things you like doing? How about tickling Dinner. each other's fancy? How yeah, about getting too. intimate and sensual? Well, that's where Marriage Supply comes in. It's for you folks out there that want to spice your, your marriage up. And after 2020, damn, don't you want a little bit more spice and being around each other for eight days on end? It never ends, so you might as well at least get some sex. Right, Matt? Yeah, I mean, well, you, you, yeah, the, but spending more time out of the house and then come back for the sex. Right. Like when you're yes, stuck in exactly. the pandemic, I, as, as far as I understand it, nobody had sex during the pandemic. It was I don't just, think they did. It was just I'm pretty shitty. sure they didn't. And that's but, where marriage supply comes in. We're ready for couples to start having <laughs> sex again. Again, And exactly. we have some great adult toys and products just for you. So go to marriagesupply.com. What else is this show sponsored by, Matt? Is sponsored by Emory, the band. Oh, really? It's sponsored by Emory Land, where you can get on demand our specials, The Week's End and I'm Only a Man. They're really amazing. But beyond specials, you can get them on Blu-ray. And if you're an Emory Land member, you get 25% off of those puppies right there. And you can watch them right now on demand in our content library in Emeryland. But the Blu-rays are awesome. Um, it's this. It's a higher form than, it's a higher quality than uh, MP3 on Spotify. It also has full video of the performance. The performances were live. Um, they're incredible of our albums, I'm Only a Man and The Week's End. We think they're the embodiment of those songs better um, than when we normally play them live. And and really, there's more there than the MP3. There's a real passion and energy to it. Uh, the audio's great. The video's great. And so we're excited about that format. We're making a new record um, in that format very soon. So, Toby... I know you're going on vacation today. Anyway, for that, you go to Blu-ray, go to Blu-ray.com. No, you go to emorymusic.com and find the shop. Or, or just go to Blu-ray.com. You'll find it. Don't worry. We, you wouldn't believe it. It was free. it was on GoGo. It was on GoDaddy. Blu-ray.com was just free. So we got it for $1.99. <laughs> it's funny just talking about Blu-rays because it's, it's an it old technology or a new one. It's weird because it's obviously sounds kind of old in a way. But yeah. at the same time, vinyls are old. And Blu-ray right. has this really high quality, and people put it on their TV. I just I feel good that people experience our art in a way that is new, and that way is yeah. cast to the TV or on yeah. a DVD 
primary, not, you know, like that's a new whole field for us to create art for. And I'm quite interested about that. I meant to look it up. I had wondered if people like because of uh, the pandemic had like cut some calls and like, ah, we got let's cut Netflix. Let's cut Disney Plus and all that stuff. And we got a shitload of uh, shelves over here full of DVDs. Let's watch those. I was wondering if like DVD watching. Just because, yeah, your entertainment did really, I mean, it's centered around the TV for a while. But now, I mean, because of the the pandemic changed so much, I can't believe it. And you know what's been really cool, honestly? I think uh, it's in our minds that it, okay, you keep hearing about the death toll and it was scary. And and there's some people that are clinging on that. And it's really, and that is horrific. I mean, how many people have died now? Over 500,000, right? In just America, right? I mean, that is just horrific. That is terrible. I do not want to diminish that at all. Now, what I will say is so many people said it was a good year. Like they got, they like, they slowed down. They took a break. They hung out with their family more. They realized some stuff about themselves and they don't, and uh, they, you know, people are, uh, somehow making it, it might, it might get worse now that everything's opening back up. Like our finances and our life might all get worse, but that year it really has changed people to go, well, well, what is this and what do I need to do and how I'm going to do it? So that's why I was thinking maybe uh, I saw, uh, I, I actually enjoyed going to the movies with Devin. We saw that movie wrath of man with Jason Statham. It was good as guy Ritchie film. And I was like, Oh, it's fun to be back at the movie theater, but there's only like 10 people in the whole theater and nobody sat near us. And I was like, that, this is really cool yeah. because I, I got to enjoy the screen and everything. That, But watching movies at home, like watching Mayor of Easttown, and st- I'm just really enjoying it. And yeah. I, uh, it's on my conditions. And, and the technology is only going to get more and more, right? I mean, yeah. you, it's only going to become more immersive in your home. Well, yeah, and that's what we're going to be talking about here in a few minutes when Peter joins us because, um, you know, I I ran across this article that says that really, really well uh, about the digital sensorium. And it's it's basically this premise that the social media and the technology, all the technologies that we have, like you're talking about, are moving from theater to personal and they're getting closer and closer to you. We all understand that trend has increased a lot from the pandemic um, and is going to increase with your AirPods and then whatever, you know, whatever it is, our Twitter, our everything that we do, um, they, let's see if I can say this right. The vibe of it was, we said, oh, it's the public square. Twitter's the public square, but it's not the public square. It's, more, they think of it more as they are that those their interfaces to have of more sensory organs of yours. So it's more like Twitter is an extension of you. Like you have a vibe of Twitter, and you or you present yourself away on Twitter, or if you have a. You know, you have a digital leash if people are tracking you on GPS. It feels like a leash. It's right. And you feel that sense, like you feel tracked. That's a sense you have. So, like, our technologies become, you know, uh, exoskeletons or external memory of ours. Or, uh, you, know, it's, it's cy- you know, we're becoming cybernetic in a way that the technologies are actually extending our sense-making abilities. So, our five yeah. senses are greatly extended by digital technologies, which is a different model than looking at it as the public square as it becomes closer and closer to you. They're extensions of you. And that's a different paradigm. Um, Well, you said something the other day that has kind of struck with me. It was in an email, but uh, you were talking to Katie about, you know, she's been doing a really great job and, and, uh, and you said something to the effect of it will all, she was frustrated because some of the technology with our app and with Emory land, isn't quite there yet. And we're trying to work around, do some work around and figure that out. And he said, that'll probably be just common that you'll have the vision, 
but the technology won't quite be there yet. And I was thinking, oh man, we really live in a time now where it it used to be, you know, movies or Star Trek or something would forecast what what it could be like, but it was a little goofy or whatever. But now you personally, it's not just in the movies, it's not just science fiction anymore. You personally can come up with ideas and creations in your mind and the tech Technology is going to have to catch up to you, and yeah. and you, the individual, will be able to think that that big. Yeah, yeah. I think of it as people all use technology different. Like, like they just use it differently. Like you can be super tuned into Twitter or not, and that right. that's different. That's like you have good vision or you have good hearing. Like it, it's right. like a it's it's part of how you process the world. That's yeah. through these sense organs or interfaces that are digital technologies. So that's you know that's all pretty freaky i was uh watching uh, i just had to it was on the i saw it i was scrolling through this menu of movies and tv shows and i was like first of all just how hilarious is i now spend a really good amount of time scrolling yeah. through entertainment and deciding in an instant good or bad yes or no to watch right mm-hmm. and it's funny because i mean it's probably just the same as music I, I i try to listen to new music and i enjoy it but i always go back to my classics and my favorites you know what I mean? Stuff that I was listening to back in the 90s or the 80s or something like that. Um, and I stopped on this movie and I was like, I got to watch it. It was Demolition Man. Nice. <laughs> Sylvester Sloan and, and uh, Wesley Snipes. And it's so funny because the technology, just like I was saying earlier, the technology hadn't caught up yet, but they had this vision of what it would be. And so like there's that the sex scene in the movie is them just sitting across from each other in the computer system uh ai augmented reality thing connects them to a sexual experience right yeah, yep. and i was thinking whoa that's it, it, when i watched that i was like i don't ever be that man you got to go straight p to v you know what i mean you got to do that you, you'll never be, get tired of that and now i go oh yeah you will that'll seem gross in the future like yeah a sexual like, contact um, yeah that's like toxic masculinity and, barbaric stuff you just want right. bone it like no we're not doing and the, that. And the technology is trying to catch up. Like forever, like we, you know, like marriage supply. Um, some of, there's uh, like vibrators now that can be controlled by your phone. And so, you know, you could be <laughs> yeah. in California, your wife could be in New York, and you go, oh, let's have a little sexy time while you're at the hotel. And then you get to control the speed and the vibrations of the vibrator. Yes. And like you are manipulating the vibrator to give her pleasure, but it's you doing it. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, she doesn't know what to expect or whatever. And I was like, man, that's so crazy. This is going back to demolition, man, the same thing. It's going to get more and more. I mean, like with heptic suits and then just even more. At some point, at some point, you will you'll you'll hook up with somebody, and you won't leave the house, and it won't be penetration, or another human penetrating you, or or being penetrated, or whatever that might be. You know what I mean? It'll be oh, I'm going to enjoy this, and uh, that person's not even here, and and eventually, it won't even be a person, right? It'll just be some. Uh, AI or robot or Android or something like that. That's, yeah, I we've been saying that for years. It's coming. Oh, it's coming fast. But the uh, I I think a way to think of that is the AirPods go in your ear. They're like in ear monitors. So in ear monitors were before AirPods, if you recall, right? Yes. Okay. So I've been using in ear monitors for more than ten years. Uh, probably ten years before AirPods came out. So okay, fine. Now one of the things about in-ear monitors is that drummers will get in-ear monitors and then they'll get what they call the butt thumper. Do you know what the butt thumper is? The butt thumper is a haptic device that sits on the drum throne and puts sub bass and makes your seat vibrate. So it's because the headphones don't make as much low end as the real subs do. So drummers sit there on a thing that makes their butt vibrate with 
haptic feedback caused by low frequencies of audio that their drums and the bass guitar make. Right. Now, that is a clunky device. It has a big speaker transducer that sticks to the bottom of the drum throne. <laughs> right. So then they came out with AirPods. And so as soon as they came out with AirPods, it's obvious to me that the slimmer version of that butt thumper is simply a vibrating butt plug. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just now a little thing. It's a, the pinky size thing. Put it up there the drummers put up their butt, and it gives them the yeah. – It gives them the. you know, you don't have to have that big clunky thing right. with the wire. and all. Of course, it would be a Bluetooth oh, yeah. thing. So, uh, you know, so you got the blue, you've got Bluetooth, you got AirPods, you've already got the butt thumper stuff, musicians, pioneer, rock right. drummers, were been all about butt stimulation for a long time, it yeah. turns out. So they, you know, they've pioneered that technology and then your wife is wearing it and you can start buzzing her up, you know, during a, um, one of her meetings so to let you know you love her. So now you're telling me Mary Supplies a music store too, exactly. an online music store, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, all that stuff is, good. I, uh, I've been seeing the wristbands that are like a metronome. And you just feel it. And I started thinking, oh, we've relied for so long on uh, vision and hearing as just the two epic senses and then mm-hmm. taste. You know what I mean? And, uh, but it that I was thinking that cl- that feeling is better. Like, it's always hard for me sometimes to hear the metronome, especially when music starts playing loud or anything like that. And you got to put in your headphones and it's just it's clunky. It, it's interfering with the things that you want to hear, like the quality of your voice or the guitar part that you're hearing in your mm-hmm. in-ear monitors. And I was like, oh, yeah, th- you're going to feel more in you the future feel the click and that watch, sense is yeah. going to become even more important than we've ever known before feeling oftentimes i mean we know you our feeling is most often res- associated with pain or not pain right mm-hmm. i mean that's a, basically as far as we go with it and now we might be a- able to use our, our skin and our body and our nerves to actually even experience more of the world than we have that sense more is, of is the world that's bigger. right Yes, you're expanding the five senses. That's what the instead of saying, "Oh, we're building buildings and stores in cyberspace." Right. Well, that's the basic. That's the basic things like, "Oh, we'll build WalMarts in online and call that a store, and it'll be right. Amazon." That's fine. But really, what we're doing when we design interfaces is adding to our senses of the world. Yeah. So that's just. I mean, I, I think that's just uh, a whole paradigm shift. So. Um, the thing that's really freaky about it is that there's so much, it's so unexplored though. And, the, right. you know, what are we going to do and who's going to do what? And then your senses that you develop are going to diverge from other people. So it'll be harder and harder to communicate with people because I mean, you'll develop new sets of skills for interfacing with the world and other people will develop other sets. But it used to be we all had the normal five senses and we could right. re- relate about stuff. But you could develop this whole inner life and sensory experience for yourself to take in a new world that's digital and that's not so easy to share with others right you know what i mean right well uh so like for people i've been wondering like because you've been talking about vr like i mean creating a a, like with our our specials like uh with doing uh i'm only a man and the week's in and now we're doing our new record and the question will be coming out later this year we're creating an experience for you to try and uh, affect all your senses outside of just going to a club and seeing that band perform. You know, it's, yeah, we're it's trying more to, layers to create. We're trying to on. tap into yeah. more of that. But I'm wondering, like, when you talk about VR, does the brain work like if there's a blind person, will virtual reality work for them because it'll tap into parts of their mind that are visual, but it's not just the eyeball seeing it or now hearing? we're talking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. is that is yeah, that going to, to come? Do. Like, there's will, will the do. blind see? 
because they're in a digital world and they'll actually see just the same as you. But here, mm, I you don't can, think the but, same, but they might see differently than you. Yeah. That's what's more, for, maybe, or something. Different. Yeah. yeah. Different. So I don't know. Let's ask Peter because Peter is now in the waiting room. Peter Berkman uh, is, he's a musician. He is a thinker. He works for the the Center for the Study of Digital Life, and he is here to talk about an uh, article that was written by a you know a friend Aaron, of his actually, yeah. the, Aaron the, Lewis of Stained. Aaron Lewis, not of Stained, <laughs> but who uh, wrote the article, the Digital Sensorium, which I think is worth a read, and we'll discuss it here, and it'll be, we'll link it in the show notes. We were just talking about the movie Demolition Man and how that's how we'll have sex in the future for sure. Oh yeah, don't forget the shells, man. Right. <laughs> this guy doesn't even know the shells. Come on. And, uh, the shell. That's what's so funny. We, we've been talking about this for a bit, but uh, just the idea that that movie uh, and so many movies forecast really cool things, but they can't. The technology isn't there. So like Wesley Snipes is a heightened human with all the stuff, but he's still just using a keyboard. You know, like he's just using this keyboard to type really fast. You're like, back then, you're like, whoa, this is amazing. Look how fast he can type. He is a superhuman, but, you know, it's just a, they couldn't come up with something better than a keyboard in the future, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Well, Peter, and, uh, yeah, no text to speech, no uh, brain interface situation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Peter, thank yeah, you for joining us. The full of beautiful things like that. Yeah, the, yeah, it, it is. Um, Peter, I I want to do cover a bunch of territory here, so I'm going to just Great. give us a quick overview of the things that I'm interested in here, and we'll see how much we can get to in the time that we got. But the the Center for the Study of Digital Life is is quite an undertaking and a big deal. It's not something I I just discovered it you know recently, and so I just kind of want to get an onboarding of what that is and the philosophy and mission of it and how you got involved sure. with it. Um, I think it's quite interesting to talk about your band and music. I, and I don't know if you know it or not, but Toby and I are musicians in a band that's really not that far off from yours. Your band is, is am I saying it right if I say Anamanaguchi? You actually, yeah. Okay. First try. Got it. Good. Yeah. I want to talk about that because I think that your band and our band are both very much uh, inspired by Pinkerton is, is kind of... Uh, that's you talking the Weezer album? Yeah, that's yeah. our territory, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and yeah. we've been doing it. You know, we've been doing it for twenty years, so touring and playing. You know, post oh, post hardcore version of Weezer is basically what we probably are. Um, yeah, and, I think I think uh, I think we're pretty super close there. Pretty, yeah, pretty aligned <laughs> because it's just interesting yeah. that those things overlap, and that you are interested in and doing work and thinking really far about society and culture and the future and its technological interfaces. And I see our project overall as to just follow the music trail all the way through that. And, you know, I, I can't wait to be creating in VR, uh, you know, art, this musical art that taps the same emotions that I care about now in VR and beyond, you know. So that's kind of the path, I think, that, that links all this together. But the reason that we got connected in the first place was that article on the digital sensorium. Uh, right. That kind of really explains that. And Toby and I have been talking about that a little bit already. I'm going to link that in the show notes. So trying to tie all those three together is great. So if you don't mind, the, um, let's start with talking about the Center for the Study of Digital Life and what that is and how you got connected to it. Yeah, you got it. So <clears throat> the Center for the Study of Digital Life uh, was started by a guy named Mark Stallman, who is... Uh, if you ever meet the guy, if you ever speak with him, uh, I think you, maybe you should if, if you're interested. He's uh, a very big uh, 
<laughs> I guess to call him a personality would be weird, but uh, he has this particular history. You know, he, uh, in the 90s, worked as a uh, sort of Wall Street analyst guy, uh, brought AOL public, um, and then retired uh, shortly after, or I guess somewhere in the mid-90s or the late 90s, and slowly started accumulating uh, a library um, of uh, basically everything having to do with uh, what we're talking about here, the intersection between technology, society, uh, importantly, psychology, um, with a particular focus um, on a couple important figures, uh, one being uh, Marshall McLuhan, who was, uh, you know, this big media figure uh, in the 20th century came up, you know, this phrase, the medium is the message. Mm-hmm. Um, and another guy that uh, sort of figures very, very much into the ground of uh, what Mark does is uh, was a friend of his father's, um, the mathematician Norbert Wiener, who came up with the term cybernetics uh, back in the 40s. Um, with Mark's dad. And um, so basically the whole field of like systems theory, blah, 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 um, sort of comes from that that world. But the Center for the Study of Digital Life um, was a way for Mark uh, to find, I guess, like outlying thinkers who uh, have recognized that the world that we live in has already been profoundly reshaped by digital technology. And, um, you know, one time I told Mark sort of the more, the most important insight that you've had throughout all of this is that digital is not electric, that there's something brand new going on here, that there's a sort of state change, not only in the technology itself and how it works, but how in turn it being different shapes, uh, our own psychology differently. Um, not only people, you know, that use the stuff, but, much, much more dramatically, uh, children who sort of come of age under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I was born in 1988, and I kind of I remember a world where my family didn't have a computer in the house, and then sort of the day we first got our PC. Like I was about age seven when Windows 95 came out. And some people call that the uh, the eternal September, where. Um, suddenly all the kids flooded onto Usenet and yeah. all these other forums that people had assumed were for adults. And so, you know, uh, me personally, I sort of grew up into this transition from a world super, super dominated by television into one where uh, stuff like computers, the internet, um, just slowly started taking over that stuff. And, uh, you know, watching... Younger people, yeah, I, I was born like with, I suppose, the internet, and there were children born later, sort of in the internet. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's a different it's a different vibe for sure. Um, but the Center for the Study of Digital Life and my intersection with it, um, that came about when I started studying Marshall McLuhan. So, um. I had first heard about McLuhan in uh, college at NYU, where I studied music technology. I, I dropped out, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, my second semester, senior year. So my parents were thrilled, obviously. <laughs> but uh, 
No, I, I dropped out to work on uh, video game music and, uh, you know, to continue work with my band, uh, Anamanaguchi. And so my parents actually, they, they were all right with it. But, um, but McLuhan was one of these figures that um, really stuck out to me um, as one of the few, like, philosophical people that, uh, you know, sort of made any impact on me besides being bored to death. Um, so... In my studies, I actually sought out uh, this famous guy, Marshall McLuhan. Uh, it turned out he had written uh, his own uh, doctoral dissertation back in the 1940s when he was, you know, 27 or so. So that would have been about like my age when I first discovered uh, the book that, uh, that he wrote. Um, and it was on uh, the sort of history of Western or alphabetic uh, education, this curriculum called the Trivium, Grammar, Logic, Rhetoric. And so anyway, it was, it was in my reading of that dissertation that I started thinking this McLuhan guy, there was a lot more depth in, to what he was saying. I started getting on my computer, taking my keyboard, searching uh, you know, with particular terms. I'm, I'm pretty good at searching on Google, I, I do have to say. So <laughs> I, I never search anything I'm looking for without quotes separating everything, you know, so I'll search, you know, Marshall McLuhan. And then, uh, I was actually looking for, um, uh, you know, maybe you guys know GK Chesterton yep. here on the, on the bad Christian podcast. You so, got it. Um, Chesterton figured greatly into, uh, McLuhan's own conversion. So, um, I was looking on the internet to see if there is anybody who had also, uh, taken an account of, Belloc with uh, McLuhan because Chesterton and Belloc sort of synonymous. And, you know, I was just idly Googling, like, you know, has anyone said anything about Marshall McLuhan and Hilaire Belloc? So that took me to a blog post um, where I saw um, that is Belloc being the guy who brought Chesterton into the church, for instance. So I found this blog post that was about McLuhan and Chesterton. I hit control F and I was like, there's no Belloc here. Like, what? How did this come up? And then I hit like load all comments. And then there was Mark Stallman in the comment section saying, you know, hello, uh, this is interesting, but uh, I have all these unpublished works from Marshall McLuhan where he's talking about this, that, and the other thing. I emailed with his son, Eric. He read uh, everything that uh, Hilaire Belloc and Chesterton ever wrote. And um, if anyone would like these unpublished essays, please uh, seek me out, Mark Stallman, New York City. So I was like, okay. And then I found this Center for the Study of Digital Life website. And I was like, all right. Uh, looked at the people on there and saw Eric McLuhan listed, who is uh, Marshall's son. But I also saw this guy, Doug Rushkoff, who's a, a media theorist who, who I'd actually met up with earlier that year because I liked his work. So I was like, who is this guy? And then I looked for an email for him. And the one that turned up was new media at aol.com. So I was like, okay, I'm going to send an email there and see what happens. And it fired back. So, um, yeah, that, that was, uh, Mark, we wound up, uh, meeting for about like, I want to say like six to eight hours in New York city at Bryant park, where I just had my copy of McLuhan's dissertation. Basically every page was annotated. Um, it's a big history. So he mentions a lot of people. 
uh, in this dissertation. So I drew little pictures of them, you know, in the margins just to like, it's, it was a massive undertaking, but Mark looked at that and was like, you know, very few people have actually read that. Uh, and he was talking about it as if he had read it. And so I was like, okay, interesting. And he goes, um, you know, he didn't write that. Right. I was like, it's like, what, what are you talking about? (laughs) So, um, he's like, that's a Cambridge dissertation, but it was actually written at St. Louis University because it was during the Second World War. And uh, he wrote it with his friend. Blah, 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 like He just knew a lot about what was going on. And at first I was like, is this a crazy guy? But then I went home and I went to uh, you know, the St. Louis University archive or whatever and looked up what he was saying. And it was, it was actually bang on. Like He did write it in St. Louis uh, with this guy that he was talking about. And uh, had the class notes from that guy's uh, lectures in 1941 or two or whatever. And sure enough, they, it's the same sort of structure. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a meandering long version to say that the, the Center for the Study of Digital Life, um, I'll, I'll just rephrase how I introduced it, um, was made to study how um, digital technologies have particular uh, effects on human psychology, and the way that we shape our societies. Um, And those effects are distinct from those that preceded it. Um, You know, really a process that started with the telegraph, where electricity as a mode of communication um, sort of pushed out the uh, the print uh, world, Mm -hmm. which previously had pushed out the scribal, handwritten world. So, um, you know, electronic communications include things like the radio, things like uh, television, uh, but also, yeah, the Morse code that, that came before that. But, um, you know, there are very, very few people who make that distinction um, mm-hmm. to study digital technology um, per se, and also to then think through the implications of what that means for our lives. Yeah. And um, to say, we're not doing that anymore. So this is how this stuff works. This is what we understand about it. This is what we tend to ignore about it. And then sort of going, therefore, you know, um, while trying to absorb as much uh, stuff that uh, people tend to not pay attention to, Mm -hmm. sort of stuff that people tend to... uh, either make a value judgment about, oh, this is good or this is bad. Uh, our, our style is to just kind of be open-minded, I suppose, and, and take things in and um, probe and experiment and see, see what happens. So uh, I, I know that you guys uh, found me through Aaron Lewis, who uh, is a friend uh, who wrote the Digital Sensorium uh, article. So we actually uh, got connected through that guy, Doug Rushkoff, I was talking about, um, who I had first met in 2016. So um, I, I'll, I'll briefly mention that, that connection because I think it's kind of interesting. So uh, Doug Rushkoff is a friend of Mark Stallman's. They, uh, they ha- actually have a podcast together. They recorded on Doug's podcast, uh, Team Human. That was uh, a few years back, um, which does a much better explanation of what uh, the Center for the Study of Digital Life is up to uh, better than I did. But um, so uh, 
Yeah. So Doug um, is a uh, is an author, a uh, sort of media person, <laughs> good at, good at uh, appearing publicly in front of a microphone. Um, but he made these documentaries that super affected me uh, when I was maybe like twelve or in you know around middle school. They showed us a documentary in our art class called um, The Merchants of Cool, um, which was all about how kind of the sausage is made at Viacom or like MTV or Nickelodeon or Comedy Central. These sort of, this sort of like, how did cool in the form that it was understood in the late 90s get invented as like a pseudo identity to become and then sell back to kids, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, like, how, how is that process of, of making a way of life, like making culture by hunting out culture done? Like, so it, it followed people like cool hunters, but then it also followed like people who go out to small shows and interview kids and stuff. This is back in like 2000 or 99. And then it would study like focus group people and then focus, uh, like study producers who decide what, you know, what's going to go on, uh, networks and stuff. And then what ads they're going to sell against it. Um, and how those ads will be made, blah, blah, blah. So I saw that when I was about 12 and fast forward about 15 years later, um, I was about to go on tour with, uh, my band, uh, in support opening for a hologram called hologram, a Vocaloid software uh, <laughs> called Hatsune Miku. I don't know if you're familiar with Miku, but no. um, for anyone who can't see, um, Hatsune Miku is a blue-haired, um, I guess, teenage anime sort of girl who is really um, this software, like vocal software, you know? So a sort of like elaborate text-to-speech singer um, that anyone can type in words and anyone can program. And so we were about to go on tour with Miku and I was like, Doug, I would love to talk to you about a lot of things. So um, Aaron, uh, again, around this time, Aaron had been uh, talking with Doug about a bunch of things. So Doug also, he's written a bunch of books. One's called program or be programmed. He, Doug basically is just a, was sort of trying to champion a, like trying to like figure out how these things work, you know? And so, um, yeah, I will, uh, I've been talking too much, but I will, I will digress from this discussion that the, the projects that I am currently working on for the center of the study of digital life. Um, number one is, uh, we are trying to, uh, figure out how, um, education can better work in this mm-hmm. uh, new mode, and so is that because of twenty twenty? You mean like, but you, and when you say new mode, you mean digitally, like Zoom and stuff? Well, yeah, Zoom Zoom will probably factor in, but just a, a sort of total thing. The and whole so, paradigm shift of the new the way of looking. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm hearing in your uh, backstory there. Um, yeah. this very fascinating, if I can summarize it, it almost seems like from your point of view, 
Um, and this is what I like about it. It's almost mystical because it almost feels like you have a calling and it was this mysterious thing and you found the guy and, you know, you had all this self-directed energy toward the field itself. And you found this guy from the 40s who has a great conceptual awareness of the paradigm shift that we're entering in 2021, 2020, really, um, it's kind of really things have tipped and sped up. And there's this guy who was way ahead of his time, uh, McLuhan, that you kind of had found and channeled and found in the hidden. That you know, that's the way I hear that story, and it, it reminds me of a calling. Is it really what it? Like you were, I mean, couldn't you help know, but follow that. that line. That's the word. Yeah. yeah. Like for me, I mean, more. The, I haven't. I've never really spoken publicly about my um, conversion. Well. I call it a, a maybe like reversion, but so I, I was born, raised Catholic, but my parents, you know, they, the story is the same for a lot of people in my situation. I, so I was born in 88. My parents were born in like 50, 52. Um, and that is to say, was raised in like a pretty like secular situation, you know, uh, you know, my parents, uh, my mom taught CCD, which is like sort of Sunday school situation, yeah. but you know, so like we had stories, but there was no like organized religion, you know, it was sort of like, yeah, this is what we have. And then by the time you're an adult, you can figure it out for yourself. And, you know, my family, we all stopped going to church by the time I was like 12 or something. And so, you know, neither of my parents were particularly religious. And uh, by the time I got confirmed, I didn't go into a church again, really, unless someone died or someone was getting married or whatever. So, um, yeah, sometime around 2016, um, I like early 2016, I started getting, you know, transitioning from being totally agnostic about anything, just like pursuing music, pursuing whatever it was I was doing. And, um, that sort of like hit a wall for me and I needed to zoom out a little bit. And, uh, particularly I... I learned that I needed to pray and I hadn't done that for a long, long time. And so, uh, somewhere in the, in early 2016, um, prayer, uh, led me to, uh, this sort of calling. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's really how it happened. And so I wound up back, um, you know, my, my parents are like, what happened to you? Like, why are you so <laughs> religious now? Like, <laughs> like they, not unlike an, are you okay? Sort of way, but like, um, they were, they were just like kind of surprised. Um, and yeah, soon, like my parents, friends who were still religious, like they wanted to ask me like, why? Like everyone was just deeply confused. So yeah, I think calling is, is the right word and it still motivates, um, you know, everything that, uh, that we do, um, or at least that I do, um, you know, in, in this, in this field. So I think that um, helps too, cause it makes it more authentic that you found it on your own or, or there was a desire or like, like you said, you learned you needed to pray. Like I, I grew up evangelical in the South and I didn't learn I needed to pray. I just I was told I had to do it or else I was evil, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. But now that I've gotten away from it, like, you know, I've deconstructed a bunch and gotten, I don't attend church at all anymore. I found myself naturally going, oh, I'm missing something. What is, oh yeah, mate. I am thankful. Like the, I was a, a couple of podcasts ago or whatever I said, uh, I'm realizing that I, I am thankful when I sit down with my family and eat dinner. And so it's not just you pray yeah. because you're supposed to. Like I was like, oh, I'm, right. I'm actually really thankful in this moment that God 
thanks. You know, like, yeah. a, and, it, and it felt real and authentic in a way that it didn't before. But it is funny that it's a it's a calling, and you, like you're you're seeing it more. Like, I'm wondering if if everything, it maybe even what we're talking about here, is some mix of spiritual and digital, and if they're not one and the same in a it, sense, there's something like really funny going on there. And I have just a sense of it, and it's not something I can articulate at this time. But I too feel drawn to the to the area. I thought that when I kind of deconstructed Christianity, that I would become more. Mechanical. Mechanical, but now the mystical things and the it's really just to get back to what we're talking about the education or the paradigm shift. There's some some people who could see it long in advance, and some people can see in advance now of what it's going to be like when we have extended humanity into absolutely bizarre ways that will seem super bizarre, um, and we're in the middle of that right now. And so it's as if. There's a the new paradigm is one that some people can visualize and some people can't and some people resist and it's, uh, it has the parallel to Christianity. It's like, well, you know, the kingdom, like, you know, in in, in the God's kingdom, it's an overlay to this reality. If you're a Christian, you talk well, kingdom values or kingdom this or what. That's a different paradigm, a way of looking at the world. And I think the uh, digital realm that we're entering into that can you can rebuild everything in it in but it's in new ways it's not just copying retail for the internet it's like our yeah, although, whole although McLuhan liked to say uh we always use the new thing for the old job yeah you know? <laughs> we never like to look at something for what it is and what it can do where I was like oh that'll work for what I used to do and then we spend 90 percent of the energy doing that meanwhile in the background you know 10 percent of the energy is being spent by people who don't have those uh, sort of preconceived things on top of it and wind up being like, well, it could also be used for that or it could be used for that. And that sort of winds up taking over. Um, but yeah, there, there's, uh, in terms of that, that whole like praying thing, it's like, I, I like thinking of it as in, in terms of like breathing, you know, praying and acting. So, you know, breathing in and out. It's as if to say like, you know, Oh, you know, I only breathe in. You know, it's like okay, right. well then, you're going to suffocate just as much as if you only breathed out. So it's this like push pull situation that always needs to be, you know, it's it's like I was holding my breath for ten years, basically. Right, <laughs> like that I, first time. I have a similar but. experience in the way I would say it's super bizarre, but um, you know, the a lot of the focus on the stuff and the digital sensorium and your article about the or piece about the McLuhan's and stuff like that, it yep. really starts to highlight the inner self, basically. And so the way Definitely. I look at my story is until recently, I didn't know about that. I've been an external person operating in a single mode, not reflective or anything. I've just been living, doing in a very, you know, concrete driven external mode. And now I understand that there is an inner life and I have one. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I know, and, and I think and everybody, everybody else already does. knew about that, that they had an inner life, yeah. but I wasn't, it was like holding my breath for a really long time is what it feels like. So now it's like, oh, there are other modes, there are other mental states than the one I've always been directly in. Like I've had a very stable mood, very intense, very focused, no ups and downs, just living. And now I understand that there's these other states of mind or zones or places you can be, um, and 
as the 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 digital technology changes and stuff that that's very very directly impacting my inner landscape and what it is basically so it's like and, a and whole when we're talking world. about uh, i was gonna say too when we're talking about the digital sensorium because i don't totally get all of this but it, we're just throwing that term around kind of casually i don't know if it I had never yeah. heard of it before the article. Yeah, that, that we're, term we're, comes from an article uh, written by uh, Aaron Z. Lewis. Yeah. Um, not of Stained, not the band Stained, right? But, <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. But exactly. we're talking about our senses in the digital world, right? Yeah, can like, you explain is, that, is it, Peter? Yeah. What does it mean to yes. uh, yeah, get that <clears throat> paradigm shift there? Or we could talk about some of the examples in that yeah. article about the Twitter oh, yeah, exoskeleton. This, this, this I whatever. think, is a perfect, uh, perfect sort of pivot to the uh, the core points that we've sort of stumbled on in this uh, in this research so um, <clears throat> the uh, that that title inside the digital sensorium is a uh, updated version of an old McLuhan title which was inside the five sense sensorium right so McLuhan had this thought that okay well if we're on the radio, our, in terms of our outer senses, our ears are doing a ton of work and we're not paying attention to what our vision's doing, you know, just as much. Just as when we're reading silently, we're filling in that gap sort of auditorially in a way by, yeah. you know, we're not hearing it, but we're hearing it. So Internally hearing um, it when you read. Yeah. Right. And so in my article on the McLuhan's and the inner senses, I sort of point out that... Um, Marshall McLuhan was fascinated with this, uh, and in fact, all of his work uh, centers around this kind of forgotten um, doctrine, really, uh, in uh, medieval psychology and even classical psychology before it. Um, so, um, you know, I, I was taught when I was in kindergarten, maybe you guys do that, we have five senses, right? You know, yeah. we have vision, we have sound, touch, taste, and uh, smell, the other one. So... Um, but roughly since, you know, 300 BC up, up through really, I think the 1600s, uh, it's not until then that this stuff sort of starts fading is, uh, it was widely, uh, believed and there were different formulations of it, that there were also something called inner senses or in English, they were sometimes called our wits, uh, inward wits. Um, and you'll find them in Chaucer, you'll find them in Shakespeare, you'll find them uh, in any poetry. And uh, some people said there were four, some said there were five. Uh, Marshall sort of discovered this whole thing in the work of St. Thomas Aquinas and was like, whoa, uh, there's this thing that St. Thomas calls the common sense, which he found in Aristotle and, and onward, the sensus communis or common sense which is not what uh, you know, we would know common sense as, which is like, oh yeah, that's what you do. That's common sense. Um, this term in this, uh, it's a scientific term and it means um, uh, what happens to each of those particular senses, outer senses, as they become integrated into one impression in the, really in the front of the brain which is what they all believe this is, the census communis. Um, and then those impressions are stored in something called the imaginative power, uh, where they can be rearranged in, in various ways. So the, the example given in one of these books is, 
you can uh, imagine the sensible form of a man and then uh, combine that with the sensible form of flight and make a flying man that you've never seen before. And that's sort of the imaginative power. And then there was uh, this, so there, St. Thomas and McLuhan uh, would have accepted four, but um, McLuhan never really got to this stuff, which is what my, my article is about. So the third one, after census communis and uh, the imaginative power, is something that was called the cogitative power, um, which has been translated as thought or thinking things through. Um, and uh, this, this one is considered uh, by St. Thomas and the other medievals to be the sort of highest power that uh, is in the body of human beings. So we're still talking about the brain, but uh, that is the highest sort of knowledge, knowledge faculty. Um, to be able to think and, through things explicitly internally. Yeah. And so this means like knowing uh, a particular, what's called intention, uh, like this tree. Uh, actually, here's the way that St. Thomas puts it. So he says in the Ten Commandments, you have, uh, these are all intellectual, right? So you have, thou shalt honor thy mother, uh, thy father and mother. So he says, through the intellect, you know, father, through the intellect, you know, mother, but it's through the senses uh, and particularly the cogitative power that, you know, my father, my mother. So you have this form of father, mother, this pattern, but it's recognized in particular in that is in material reality by this or that. Um, uh, and the word for that they use is intention. It's very bizarre. So, um, but just like the census communist has this relationship with imagination where the sensible form is then retained um, and then can, you can do various things with it. The cogitative power has a similar relationship with memory, the memorative power. So what that does is it not only keeps these particulars in time, but it also nests these forms within each other. So, um, you know, uh, the example that uh, Aristotle, I think, gives is, uh, you know, son of Cleon. So this sort of, not just the... Um, the particular of like my father, but also a sort of causal investigation is, is brought in through the memorative power. And so just to, to bring this back to like, what does the digital sensorium mean? The most dramatic um, sort of way to illustrate that is to say that electronic technology, or rather electric technology, really starting from the, uh, the telegraph uh, up through television, this is a, uh, technology which really, really, really ramped up our ability to imagine, uh, to compose things together that had never been imagined before, um, to, uh, you know, from screens to picture things that are not there, you know, on a scale that human beings had literally never done before. Just as dramatically as digital technology, uh, amplifies memory and um it's uh it's difficult to imagine a more radical shift in a psychological 
uh, technological environment. But, uh, you know, it, it's comparable really to, um, you know, what's sometimes called the axial age, where you had people who lived in an oral society, you know, bound by speech. And then suddenly you have people who not only know how to write, but you have a society shaped by writing and by literacy. Um, you know, thinking of Christ's incarnation, you know, he called the logos, the word. He's walking around, um, you know, his, his mother read the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, you know, sat in temple and stuff. And uh, he uh, walks around, picks 12, you know, unimpressive, illiterate men, really. But um, they are sort of moved to preserve his word in one way or another, uh, you know, by the Holy Spirit. And that, you know, Christ never wrote anything down, never told anybody to write anything down. and, And yet they did. And that process of keeping something worth passing down um, through writing and not just through writing, but through speech and rehearsal of that, uh, of that writing um, dramatic rehearsal of it, you know uh, the sort of like the, the liturgy of that early church um, is impossible to, to picture without how writing shaped the memory of those mm-hmm. uh, first uh, priests. It is the technology and, that makes the difference on the Jesus story, basically. Yeah, I mean that simply that that technique of preserving the presence of something absent, and not only its presence but its intention. That like because you can call a word into being just by saying it, but to keep it in writing and to know how to interpret it and to know how to pronounce it correctly, this all takes an enormous amount of training. Like. Children are not born knowing how to do this, you know. Um, and so uh, this is, uh, it's, uh, it's, to bring this back to the digital situation, <clears throat> it's comparable to sort of learning how to read again and also recognizing that we leave a trail behind us, you know, as we move through this, like, insane memory scape that we've built uh, without really recognizing that that's what we were doing <laughs> throughout that process, you know? Yeah, it goes back to what you said earlier about the the, uh, the messages, the medium or whatever. I never really thought about that, but just the idea of Jesus without uh, the technology of the written word doesn't exist to us today, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that's there, the way that in of... which he chose to, to present himself and um, to reveal himself. Uh, McLuhan liked to say, you know, uh, Christ would have suffered a very different fate under Genghis Khan, you know, uh, it was this encounter between the, the Jewish people who wrote in scrolls for thousands of years with the Romans who had adopted alphabetic writing from the Greeks and had laws and modes of, you know, hierarchical organization structured around writing. You know, it's really a kingdom of speech that the, the Romans built. Um, and Christ uh, revealed God's attitude toward these things. Um, you know, just as 
they they nailed him to a cross and wrote above him uh, in all these different languages. Um, and it's uh, it's very fascinating to me to think about the incarnation in terms of a sensory event uh, for humanity, and to always go back to who these people were, how God chose to meet them. Um, and uh, there's, there's a sort of infinite number of, of questions that can come from this. Um, there's something beautiful that I found in the, the beginning of, I think it's the first letter of John. Uh, let me see if I can read this. Yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And in some manuscripts, it says your, <laughs> so <laughs> to make your joy complete. So um, that is a, a sort of sensory profile. That's a whole story of what, what I just said there of, uh, okay, we see it now. What do we do? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so we have and, this, we have, you know, five senses, which is kind of nonsense. I mean, that what a dumb idea. Um, the dumbest part <laughs> of that idea is that the five senses are all that reality is. You know, is it how funny is it that we know what reality is because we use our five senses to know, but those are just happen to be the five senses that we have and are familiar well, with. Well, yeah, we, we share, you know. and we share those organs with, you know, animals. So my, my dog has that, uh, or this, the cow in this picture, the one it represents, but uh, the story doesn't end there. You know, you, you have uh, the impressions of them, you have the intention behind it. And so the way that um, our material senses, which we share with animals, touch um, formal uh, existence uh, in, in terms of divine ideas, the, the, or what Augustine calls the, the rationes um, eternum, uh, eternal reason, uh, that is done in the human being by this thing that we've totally forgotten how to talk about, the, this cogitative power of thinking things through to the point that they're understood. Uh, that understanding uh, in, in this medieval schema is called the intellect. So these intellectual faculties are not shared with my dog, mm -hmm. uh, but they are shared with uh, the angels who are intellectual beings. And also the demons who are intellectual beings. Are we getting closer uh, to being able to communicate them with, with the digital realm, though? Is that is where, I mean, it, are we moving? I mean, we're moving into a place where our minds are going to be have a lot more input from a lot more things. And there are more things that exist than our five senses are able to give us. There are more powers and abilities sure. that are on the horizon for us. Yeah, well, the uh, there there's something that I, I want to get back to with with prayer again, which uh, and even Chesterton, T Toby mentioned, you know, when I sit at the table, I'm thankful, right? And so how do I how do I deal with that thankfulness? Um, you can look, you don't see God there, you know, uh, on the table. That that 
thankfulness is a kind of pattern recognition of, huh, this has happened a lot of times, you know, in tough times and, you know, in good times. Let, let me think this through. So Chesterton once said uh, something, something I really like, which is intelligent, or gratitude is the highest form of intelligence. That is being able to be thankful for anything, any aspects in a situation um, just gives you a, a deeper access to the nature of the thing. And this is, there are many aspects of this that are only possible for a Christian, I think, which is number one is uh, that sort of depth of gratitude to be sort of eternally seeking through to find the signature of God in, in things. That's the first one. But the second, uh, which sort of sets it apart from Plato, Aristotle, and everything else, is the ability to just devalue the world altogether. <laughs> you know, to say, this is not all that it is, you know. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> to, to bring it back to what you were saying, Matt, um, that, that you had just said, um, uh, it gives us access to, to more things. Uh, what, in particular, I think what it gives us access to in ways that are super, super different from even like 10, 20 years ago is what was said. Um, the fact that you're able to search things in quotes uh, and find, like for instance, in this conversation, if we were just having this on the phone, I, I might you know go out and be like, oh yeah, I have this really interesting conversation with these guys, Matt and Toby, paraphrase what you said. But now... Um, there's going to be a transcript of this that just gets generated by something somewhere, yeah. uh, whether it's uploaded to YouTube or some podcast network and whether it's robots or humans that are doing that indexing and searching, that indexing and searching will be happening. Um, so these, what you're will, saying, well, that, these, well, that, you go ahead, Toby. Sorry, I was going to say, and, but the sheer amount of it now that like when the Bible was written, there wasn't many, you know, wasn't much access to books. Like you said, most people are literate. They, you know, you had to have a communicator and all that stuff. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that AI and computers and all that in the, now starting now, or already have started, there'll be so much information that they will look at Twitter comments quickly and then judge, Oh, this is what humanity is. Even though everybody, <laughs> the human race goes, no, we're not like that. We're good. We we're, we work hard. We care for each other. We do all this stuff. But I mean, if you looked at probably a, a large section of, you know, Twitter or something like that, our communication, I'm wondering with the amount of, uh, time that we spend already, I mean, it, it I can't believe how quickly we moved into spending time in the digital space. I mean, I really have to force myself to get out of the digital space and go shoot hoop with my kids sometimes. Oh yeah, you know what I mean, like like that. Uh, you, but you and I, I want I want that interaction with them, but I but also that that syrupy sweet something in the digital world it just calls to me almost almost like a spirit in a way or, or something like there, there's a weird place that I can go. Yeah, you go on, on TikTok or something. I go oh. This gives me humor or something interesting, or maybe, I, oh, you know what? I can talk to somebody about this, or I can send somebody else this video and they're going to laugh. I know if I send Matt a video, he's going to laugh at it. And I did some connection there that 
I never had before. It used to be snail mail or something like that or, or nothing. You know, I, I grew up, I was born in 76. There was no, no, we never had a computer in our house. The first time I ever used a computer was at school and it was the funny, it was like plotting points to make a bunny <laughs> rabbit. And I was like, right. this is so stupid. This will never catch on. <laughs> I thought that to myself, and I and what I immediately did. The funniest part about that is in that class, I immediately realized, oh wait, I can. Uh, there's a file here. What is this file thing? Oh, there's saved other bunny. Oh, I didn't even have to make the bunny wrap. I just took it out, saved it as my name, and then cheated digitally as soon as I could. Which is so funny because I would tell you, I'm not a cheater. I'm not, but. If if you looked at my history, there's some times where I'm, you know I'm doing this or that, and the way that the world is going to be viewed. That's what's so amazing. I think about the Bible is that we we still hold on to it, and there's truths to it, and all that. But I wonder what this at this exact moment what what is really being dug up and revealed about us as humans, right? Like, it, it, will will people look back on this and go, oh man? Spiritually speaking, what a revolution! What a you know, or is this like? Or well, I is, think the big is there so much access that to comes it? up in digital circumstances is a word that we're not super familiar with in English. You know, we know who, what, where, why, when, but the word whence. You know, when's the last time you really thought whence? Yeah, <laughs> which is like, where did that come from? How yeah. did that get here? That's the question that memory forces us to confront. You know, and it's it's something that imagination just leaves off the table. Whence is not an aspect to a world dominated by imagination, but it is the question in uh, circumstances dominated by memory. You know, what structure allowed, how did that happen? You know? Yeah. And so to bring it back to that, um, that sort of like gratitude being the, the highest form of knowledge, what, what it does is, um, you know, basically compels us to, you know, look at the, the full structures of things. And um, there's, uh, McLuhan liked to say, all, he liked to quote um, Paul's uh, faith comes through hearing, um, which is a, a statement of external sense, I guess. That is, it d- doesn't come through sight. Right. Um, but uh, I think maybe a bit more uh, to the point is that uh, in terms of like psychological reality, that it comes from memory too. Um, you know, you hear something, you have to be able to recognize what, what that is in the first place that you're hearing it. Otherwise it's just, you know, idle sound. But um, I, I want to get back to this, this, this thought of the inner that Matt was bringing up. So um, I, in, in my studies, there's this, so I mentioned that Mark Stallman is big on uh, Marshall McLuhan and Norbert Wiener, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, it's Marshall McLuhan and this guy, Romano Guardini, who uh, I, I'd imagine you guys have never heard of. Um, no. Because <laughs> I, I haven't met a, I've met maybe five people who've ever heard the guy's name, but he, he's very important. Uh, but yeah, bef- before, I, before I get into that, because it's, it's a big thing that, that touches on this inner that you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, so for the center, you know, we're starting a kind of digital university. We're in the beginning stages of that. Uh, we also have like a consulting thing uh, called EXO um, that stands for exogenous uh, factors. Um, but yeah, the third thing that we're working on right now is a series of conferences. So when I get off this call, I'm going to 
be uh, working on putting Marsha McLuhan in dialogue with this guy named Father Romano Guardini. So Guardini is uh, he's a mysterious name to anyone living in America, but he is also the intellectual sort of heritage for both of the last two popes in the Catholic Church. You have Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, uh, Benedict XVI and Francis. People in the U.S. tend to imagine them as somehow being the right wing and left wing of American politics. You know, yeah. oh, you have the conservative and then you have the liberal, but it's not really the case. In fact, they're, they're both united by this guy, Guardini, um, who threw all that stuff away. Um, Guardini, even though he has an Italian name, was actually a German. And he lived through uh, both world wars um, and... Uh, a young uh, Pope Benedict uh, went to some of his uh, classes after the Second World War. So Pope Francis in the 80s, when he was Cardinal, or I think just Father Bergoglio, um, he was going to write his dissertation about Guardini, flew to Germany to do it, and then abandoned it because he had a bunch of work to do. So you'd think for someone so important, someone would have said something about this stuff in English, but nobody has. So uh, I've gone and looked at the uh, the text that Francis was studying in the 80s in Germany, uh, which is this thing written in 1925. An earlier version of it was written in 1914 um, by Guardini. But um, it is very, very fascinating and touches on exactly what you're talking about, Matt, uh, of this you know, living externally, but then suddenly recognizing that you have this inward thing and then realizing that they're in tension with each other and that, you know, they, they sort of demand each other. Um, but um, so I, I started translating this with Google Translate. You know, I'm, I don't know German. I don't know how to speak it at all. But uh, with the internet, I do know German people. I can like get in touch with them. So I now have a full shitty translation next to the full German transcription that I typed out paragraph by paragraph numbered. And I've got some people proofreading it and it's a lot, it's a lot of fun That's neat. to know that this can just happen. So, but the most dramatic thing too. Uh, so we, we talked about a world of imagination, moving to a world of memory. The, if elect, if the electric world and its imagination is tied to how do we manage pretty much being tripping all the time, you know, without taking drugs. You know? right. We're basically just hallucinating uh, our way through life and yeah, yeah. living by our ability to hallucinate well. Yeah, that's a um, good way to put it. <laughs> I like that. In, in this circumstance, it becomes how do we live where we're basically in a world of robots, where if we're not careful, we become robots. Mm -hmm. And if we... Uh, you know, we're already surrounded by things that actually are robots. We carry them in our pockets. We're using them right now. There are as many sensors and microphones and uh, cameras probably as, as eyes and ears out there. So it becomes very important to distinguish what these things are as we move into a world of, you know, where human rights leads into a conversation about robot rights mm -hmm. and, and what's what are these things made of? And so uh, Guardini's work here that Francis was um, 
studying in the 80s. I'll, I'll just read the opening paragraph to it because this is my translation. It's not great. I'm sure some, some German Guardini scholar will, will say, not quite, but uh, I, I think it's all right. So it opens with the question and it says, if we look at ourselves inside ourselves, we find bodily form, limbs and organs, psychic structures and orders. We find processes of an external or internal kind, drives, acts, changes of state. What is there and what happens, we see as a unity. Uh, it doesn't appear, sorry, it doesn't just appear to us as such, it is. We would have to distrust any perception if we wanted to doubt that we really are a unity of our body and our soul. It is us, and we cannot help but relate to this unity, everything that becomes individual, what happens to us and through us, as a kind of glue that supports it, or as an effect that emanates from it. This unity does not lie in a single order of relationships like that of a machine. In this, the parts are, uh, sorry, in the machine, the parts are only mechanically next to, behind, or on top of each other. But here, inside of me, I can't help but look at depth to the next, behind and above one another. Here, I find an outside and an inside. Uh, that already is obvious in how anatomical internal organs or parts relate to external ones, but then also in the facts of sensation and movement, and also in how the processes of consciousness relate to physical ones or inner psychic happenings to more superficial ones. Uh, it's a relationship that I can only do justice by seeing an inside as being related to an outside, an outside sold to an inside, uh, to a final depth. And something inside goes outside up to a final limit. I do not find this relationship with the machine. All parts are simply next to, behind, or on top of each other. The unity of the living also contains this machine order, but it is not exhausted therein. It is not just made up of parts, but also has the direction of depth. And indeed, the most fleeting observation shows how the living whole takes in from the outside in, nourishing with forces and substances, and builds up from the inside out. It grows. So, oh, oh man, I have to continue because I love this. This, is, <laughs> this unity is built. Again, the next observation shows that it is built according to a plan, not in such a way that all sorts of substances accidentally lay together or external forces and influences intersect, although this also happens. Essentially, it is a matter of an orderly process dominated by a building plan by an internally present and effective figure. That is a really beautiful way of saying living beings, bugs, plants, animals, people have souls. Yeah, it's, it's about the way soul. Of that. It, the, the, the soul. The unity of the inner and the outer and your senses and how it all mixes together creates an exactly. experience that you're having that is an undeniable one that is has to be distinct from mechanical things because you experience right. it as a unity somehow. Exactly. Is yeah, that what we're exactly. trying to do then with this digital electronic world? We're trying to put a soul into it? Like we're we extending to- the, its abilities to... Um, we're extending the thing that becomes unity for you. <laughs> it's like the your Twitter is. Well you, you feel you feel that like in the in sensorium article, the first one, the person talks about how Twitter has become their exoskeleton. 
their avatar, their profile, what they do out there, they now sense that as how other people sense them. Right. Then they have a sense of that. There is no escape. Yeah. And so so the Twitter is... Understanding media, the extensions of man. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like you get Chrome extensions and then it does more. So you are adding by participating... Another person in the sensory article says... They use their Twitter. They used to just think kind of mushy thoughts and operate through the day. But then they started tweeting, and then it made them start thinking in complete thoughts now because they're thinking about how to tweet. As they're thinking, they're thinking, how would this yeah, be a tweet? They're thinking in the form of a, of a they're tweet. They're thinking in the form of a tweet. So that, that yeah. is now an inner thing that they're that Twitter has shaped their inner how they think. Right. Like mechanically, right. they think in complete sentences, whereas before they thought in, you know, those blurry thoughts you can have where you kind of feel stuff, but you don't have to put it all the way to words. But if you think but about the, Twitter the all the time, it alters you, your inner life to where now you think in tweetable thoughts. Right. And not, not only in, in, in the form of the sentences, but also how they're going to be met. So picturing an audience of potentially, you know, in my case, there are 5,000 people that follow me. So I, I picture them. But my account's not locked. So I also, if I want to be really thinking in the form of a tweet, um, or re- what happens more often is subconsciously I'm thinking in the form of a tweet without recognizing that I'm doing that. I am uh, putting in place not only the 5,000 people that are going to see it, but also the fact that it's public, uh, the fact that anyone who hates me can retweet it. Anyone who right. wants to search that word can find it later. You know, And so... Recognizing that, you know, to quote uh, McLuhan again, or or his friend John Culkin, that we shape our tools and thereafter they shape us. Yeah. Um, that these forms inform how we act. Um, it, it brings me to a, a sort of another quote from Pope Francis where he says, um, we have to accept that technological products are not neutral for they create a framework which ends up conditioning lifestyles and shaping social possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, decisions which may seem purely instrumental are in reality decisions about the kind of society we want to build. Yeah. Um, that is to say, you know, what what form uh, would be good to have you know, when you can recognize these things? Um, yeah. Which is this also is the danger it, of like propaganda because you can be something, oh, yeah. something can be created yeah. and you believe it and you're it's like, oh, very this is dangerous. what I, right? We're I mean, in a very yeah, dangerous taking, time. Taking something for yeah. granted. I mean, it's why Fox yeah, News so, looks like it does and acts like right. it does and it, it, it forms your opinions and puts you to a side but for to buy it's, it. It's also it. why the guy who wrote that sentence I just read uh, swore off, made a vow not to watch television as early as 1990. <laughs> Wow. It hasn't oh, sense. Man. Most people don't know that. Well, he missed some good TV, though. Th- think <laughs> of, I mean, he missed two of Twin Peaks. Right. Yeah. You know? so, <laughs> it's a give and a take. But. Think about the way, not just that Fox News shapes the minds of the, its recipients, but think about, for instance, the algorithms and of media that shape the uh the agents that create the news are our personalities. So Ben Shapiro comes to mind. We right, understand right, right. that the environment shapes his personality. And then we act like, oh, and, that's and his, his personality. Audience. But the algorithm yeah, the tells him who to be. The formal cause of, of yeah. any work of art. You know? Yeah, but when, 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 you're, when you're, and I felt this, I mean, I feel this as a creator or in the media space, what starts to work for your audience that you think you're just do, being yourself for starts to shape you and how you see the world and what you do. So what works in 
uh, an algorithm will start to shape what you think and say as the creator. It starts driving you. And we know many people who have fallen victim to that type of public figure disease is what I call it, where oh, you, yeah. where it, it's not that person anymore. It's the person merged with an algorithm trying to reach followers and it takes the person over. Right. And in fact, it's, it's amazing that you mentioned Fox News because Roger Ailes, the guy who really made that, he uh, set himself apart um, in the Nixon administration by saying, don't listen to Marshall McLuhan. This is actually true. Wow. And he wrote a book called You Are the Message. Oh, no way. <laughs> saying, getting what you want by being who you are. So uh, that's very different it's from- weird. Uh, our tools shape us. Uh, he's basically saying, ignore the tools, ignore the way that you're uh, disseminating thought and the way that it shapes you while you're doing it. Just do it, yeah. you know, and and enjoy the the new boundaries of power that you're afforded by winning people over in a sort of Dale Carnegie, you know, <laughs> con man sort of way. Um, Man, that's shaped our institutions so much, that type of thinking. And we're, you know, that's a big thing about the Center for the study of digital life is they are not caught up or ready for what's next. And, and so I guess that's a lot of what y'all do. Um, so let, just for contrast, let me ask you, why is, does Weezer get worse after Pinkerton? <laughs> <laughs> that is, now we're getting to the real philosophical yeah, yeah, question. Now we're getting deep. <laughs> so that's a really good question. You know, uh, I want to say the the most obvious thing is that MTV changed too. You know, their ground changed. And uh, after Rivers goes to college, it's a little different, you know. Yeah. But um, they they make that first record, Blue, uh, Blue with uh, Rick Ocasek, I think. Um, and uh, then the second one, they self-produce and they, um, they try to go a little harder by getting a the Flaming Lips producer on board. Um, but yeah, then famously, there's a split between Rivers Cuomo and Matt Sharp. Yeah. Matt Sharp leaves the band, right? Um, but then, you know, there's this whole giant wealth of Weezer B-sides. The I don't best. know if yeah. any Weezer... Love the B-sides okay, are the yeah. best. That's our favorite. So we all are, so we all know what's, what's really good then. Okay, good. <laughs> I just threw Perfect. out the love of my dreams, devotion, all that. Yeah. yeah. Uh. A Man After My Own Heart. That, that is exact. Yo, literally, I have covers of those chiptune covers from like way, way back. Beautiful melodies. So what happened is Rivers Cuomo went to Harvard. And he went to Harvard to study music. And he thought he didn't have the goods. And he wanted to get the goods. And when he tried to get the goods, I don't know what happened, man. I think I think he started thinking in terms of theory a bit, but this is all I don't know. It, it's difficult for me to uh, to say, but I think the answer is the audience changed, and um, the audience but, influenced him. Kind of like I, I was I always thought. Yeah, he yeah. thought that Pinkerton was such a disappointment that he was like, "Oh, let me right. try to go back to that blue album thing," and so he became the, the, the copies the of the blue yeah. album. You know, every it, it feels like. <laughs> Worst copies of the Blue Album every single time. There's some yeah. gems on all the records to me a little bit, but just oh like yeah, a, I, I agree. But yeah. but yeah, that Pinkerton. The first time I heard Pinkerton, I could not understand it. I was like, "This is uh, what what is happening here? This is like a major label band, and it, it sounds like 
uh, a garage in a way, but I love it. It it, it opened up a whole world to me. I would say that's the first, to me, that's the first emo record I ever heard, honestly. I know that's probably not considered emo in the sense of, uh, you know, what the band Mineral or something like that. But uh, there's that line, uh, even Izzy's Flash and Axl Rose. Right. He goes, uh, that original line was even Kurt Cobain and Axl Rose. But he got got rid of that. He got rid Um, of it. I think out of respect. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there there was uh, that whole moment in the in the late '80s, early '90s, which Weezer really rises out of, which is how do how does punk kind of or like how do people who aren't macho fit into the metal world, which is so obviously sick, right? You know, like, yeah, nerds doing tough metal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah right. and that's yeah. the story of both Nirvana and Weezer. Yeah, um, but uh, Nirvana yeah, okay. sort of got into it through a different direction. Man, dude, we should do a whole podcast about this. Yeah, we, I, yeah, <laughs> for sure. There's lots to do, and I, you probably, I don't know if your time's up here, but I, I thought no, it, it's not. It's not. Okay, uh, but if, if yours is, but no, I don't know. Not. But I'm just like, th- your question is so good, and I, <laughs> I, I, I think honestly, I'm too involved in the question. To no, have I just wanted to do that a little bit because it's so common um, for us, and I have so many thoughts about that separately, but. Um, I feel, you know, my take on Pinkerton is just that Rivers got burnt by it. Like it was vulnerable and real and raw in that sense that I just, that just totally wakes me up and makes me want to do that kind of stuff. But he felt like it didn't sell well. And he's like, okay, you want the pop? I'll give you the pop. And it's just right, like a right, cynical right, right. in a way. He's like, hey, he's, I'm going to give you Beverly Hills from now on because that's what you really want. Beverly Hills. You know, <laughs> you know, and that's, it's, and so it's, but oh. also <clears throat> I say it in a beautiful way because good for him. I mean, good for him. He's got, oh, his, I mean, like, dude, it's a thing. Uh, the, like, the Weezer say, has a place. You know? that Weezer, what is Weezer without fans that hate them? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it left open, I think it's actually really profound because it left open space for everybody to interpret what, Weezer should have done. You got Ozma, or you got what you do. Oh yeah, you dude, know you think you know, of like uh, yeah. I, I, there's bands in our scene like Me Without You who all, often get close to Weezer, and we often try to get there and stuff. And 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 when we say that, we mean extensions of Pinkerton. That's there's a lineage of bands right. that carry that, and it's not. It just doesn't happen to be Rivers Cuomo. So it has its right. own. I think that the Pinkerton inspiration to the emo scene and beyond is just super deep, and I hear stuff from it. You know, all the time. The um, story about it that's funny is that we learned music in about 99, uh, recording on an 8-track. And uh, I learned to record and make it. A 8-track? No, on a digital 8-track, on a zip disc um, at the time. But um, we, I recorded Pinkerton and tried to recreate every sounded part on it with just me and my friends. And I got a different person to sing each track oh that's so we sick. and it was the first that's how i learned to record music and play and figure out guitar sounds and you know yeah, figure yeah. out how to incorporate keyboards which i've always been obsessed with keyboards and synths and analog Dude, that's synths why those b-sides like are so yeah. so fresh yeah yeah i just threw out the love of my dreams that sick saw wave yeah it's amazing yeah that's Dude, exactly the story of how anamanaguchi sort of started we were doing weezer covers in my basement on a little digital four track and uh we just happened to be playing Mega Man uh when we would break for you know for snack time. And uh, then it came back and I was like, what if Weezer and Mega Man were in the same room? Oh, that's awesome. That was yeah, that was, it's yeah. great. I think people should check it out. And um, you did the Scott Pilgrim video game soundtrack. And, that's you know, right. yeah. our last special that we did 
when I created like a document for it for the 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 videographers and us to tie everything together and I had a bunch of Weezer images and Scott Pilgrim images so this is what we want it to oh, feel cool. like when we record this special as a playthrough of our album and you know that's just kind of our our world of inspiration anyway um, but I wanted to ask you um, what because to me it's not very random the the center for the study of digital life and musical mm-hmm. interests and stuff like that are you familiar yeah. with Howard Gardner and he talks about multiple intelligences and musical no. intelligence as as one of the uh, types of intelligence um, it, it, to me no, but I have heard a phrase that uh, the artists are the antenna of the human race well it's, which is, there's some connection yeah. because the, there's so many people that I know that are good at music that have this abstract type of interdisciplinary intelligence that they I'm sure that they I mean Rivers goes to Harvard you know um, the stuff right. you're interested in talking about but can obsess about a video game and the music theory and how to build chords and stuff like that is the same those things are super related uh, in the way to approach knowledge and to channel abstract things and bring them to reality kind of a thing. So I've just always felt like there's so many people in music that I know and have encountered that are like genius-like people and they don't, and it's so under underutilized. You, you know, they, they should be more cross-domain kind of a thing because <laughs> the, the type of intelligence I think musicians have is, 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 can be really quite, quite useful. It's, well, yeah, this is uh, the notion of, you know, the old Renaissance man. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's also that I think the musicians, like take rock music, for example, you have to uh, push back to get into rock music. Like your parents don't want you to do that. And, you know, I, I'm going to learn an instrument and go uh, play this show with three people there. And it, it matters. Like you have to do all that and create this world and this reality where it is important. It is real. And to do that, I think it really does hone your skills. And, and you do have to have a level of intelligence to pull that off. I mean, when you and I were running sound and playing shows that for what it's worth, Matt, in Rock Hill, South Carolina with yeah. three people there, we kept going. And like you have to have some kind of almost spiritual uh, ideal and, and intelligence yeah. of seeing the what could be. You know what I mean? People don't see what could be. They just you have to be very man. open. You have to be intelligent. You have to be able to put stuff together mechanically. Right. You have to have the interest in that. And you have to Foresight. believe in something outside that is not here. And that's what the institutions yeah. and everybody doesn't get is you're just trying to control all the shit that's here. That, that's not, right. we got to go somewhere. I mean, we got to right. find things and bring them to reality and synthesize them and make them make the, we have to make stuff. Yeah. We have to make I, the I like world. That definition of the word uh, secular, meaning uh, this place, this time, you know, nothing outside right. of, of right here, right now. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there, there's a, there's an aspect that I, that I want to highlight. Um, because I actually do have to go at a certain point, but the, <laughs> A, a catchy phrase that really made me think when I first met Mark is he said to me, digital retrieves the medieval. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know? um, but it's, it's becoming clear to me what that means. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about uh, j- just the title of, of McLuhan's book, you know, uh, Understanding Media, Extensions of Man. Um, he said later when he was revising understanding media, he found out that he wanted to say multiple things that every artifact, every human artifact does. He says, not only do they extend, but they also push things out or they obsolesce other things. 
They, they also retrieve things that have been previously obsolesced. And they also flip their characteristics when pushed to a limit. So th- these four questions, you know, what does it extend? What does it obsolesce? What does it retrieve? And what does it flip into? Damn. Uh, these are questions that McLuhan put in his, uh, in his book, Laws of Media, which again is uh, sort of understanding media 2.0. Um, those four questions are super medieval. Um, and, uh, he, you know, there's a, we were talking about synthesis just now where, um, he was writing someone in, in the seventies, uh, when he had just come up with this saying, this all sounds a bit Hegelian. I know, you know, that there's, you know, a, a sort of concretion negation, that, that whole thing, abstraction, concretion, whatever. But, um, in terms of theses, we're talking thesis, antithesis, synthesis, but he's saying Hegel doesn't have the retrieval bit as far as I know. That is studying patterns of change, patterns of evolution, um, instead of just assuming linear development uh, to that change in shape, uh, McLuhan says it's you know perfectly natural to assume that... Uh, that shapes or forms um, after they're pushed out of existence or pushed out of our areas of attention can be brought back into areas of attention. Um, And they'll seem new, but they've really been there sort of the whole time. What what I like about that retrieval thing is that it brings time into the question and says, in order for something to be retrieved, it had to have been pushed out in the first place. So, um, uh, McLuhan called these things tetrads, these four questions, uh, that you can ask about any human artifact from, you know, uh, writing to a spoon to, um, a trend or a meme on TikTok or whatever. Um, but he used it on, on some pretty, pretty big ones like television, uh, and computer. So, he has in the uh, the flip quadrant for television, uh, inner trip, um, a sort of, you know, fantasizing endlessly, you know, <laughs> to, to quote my own band, uh, Endless Fantasy. But um, he has in computer, it says, enha- what does it enhance? Speeds of calculation and retrieval. Uh, retrieval being one of the, the four parts of the Tetra. What does it obsolesce? Uh, you know, the bookkeeper, the archivist, uh, uh, that whole thing. Uh, what does it flip into when pushed to its limits? Anarchy via the overlay of bureaucracy, you know, <laughs> sort of uh, when it looks like everything's in order, you sort of, no one's in charge because no one's touching the thing. And that, that I guess, is the world of uh, AGI, you know. Oh, we'll let the computer do it for us. Uh-huh. Um, but that's, but that becomes asks, anarchy because it is so orderly that it goes flips to anarchy. And yeah, yeah, that the that the bureaucracy turns into no one's responsible for it. Right. <laughs> so no no one in charge is a anarchy, uh, yeah. no leader. Um, but then uh, in the retrieval question, you know, what does it retrieve? The answer is perfect memory, total and exact. Uh, which is kind of scary, you know, uh, but also 
presents new options. It's really Think- scary. The, the total memory being exact, like you said earlier about this conversation, will be web crawled by computers and agents and people, regardless if, if we wanted to forget it. or we. I like to remember it as a paraphrase, as you said. You know, right. <laughs> but but it's going to be remembered as exactly how stupid I actually am and what I exactly <laughs> right. said. And it won't. <laughs> and one time I got into an experiment where I recorded my audio of me walking around on a belt pack uh, for more. I, mean, I did it for two months. I had I recorded every single thing that happened to me. I just was recording all the time. Whoa! Um, for an experiment, and I was horrified at the way it felt. To I thought I was going to be able to settle all these arguments and go back and look at all this stuff, and I was. Very surprised when you go back to l- listen to things. It's not what I remembered, and it didn't solve shit. <laughs> you know, I was like, "Oh my gosh, how crazy is it?" Like the reality I live in is one where I summarize, paraphrase, re-say that argument. This is what rename that conflict, and then if you go back and look at the bare thing with perfect memory, it's like, "Oh, that's totally yeah, different than my what I perceived well, was yeah. going on or would ever have remembered." You know. Well, what we're talking about here is sort of the difference between logic. And analogy, um, where logic is a sort of three-part unfolding process, but uh, between a premise and, and a conclusion. Um, but then if you ask whence, where, where the fuck did that premise come from? You, you enter the world of analogy, which is four parts. You know, yeah. A is to B as C is to D. And this is something I discovered when I was looking up the etymologies of words, which I love doing. I love, you know, being like... Asking that whence, where the fuck did that come from, to words or trends or whatever. Like when people say swag and based, I'm like, okay, you like Lil B. And they're like, who's Lil B? Well, that's the guy that made that popular, you know. Um, But uh, anyway, so analogos is Greek, Greek roots. And if you were to bring them into English in the way that they've conventionally been done, ana and logos, you'd get rewording. So... uh, that's kind of strange. And, and in fact, you might even get reverbing, mm-hmm. you know, this in, uh, invisible environment of, of uh, reverb or rewording things. Um, reverbing. Oh, yeah. interesting. Well, yeah. Everybody yeah. needs a little reverb. But, but I, wanted life, to, right? I wanted to bring something up, too, about uh, when you mentioned uh, this whole uh, driving you crazy thing. Uh, McLuhan had an interview with John Lennon in 1969 and Yoko Ono, too. Uh, and he said... Have you heard that report that it's possible to drive a man mad by putting his own heartbeat on a PA system and just making him listen to his own heartbeat? And uh, John Lennon replied, well, we just made a record of that. (laughs) He'll all be going mad now. Uh, Well, that's what made us mad then, uh, the record we gave to your boy. And uh, so he says, it's amazing, that heartbeat. And he says, we made that record. We recorded both of our heartbeats. And uh, he said... uh, what did he say? Uh, yeah, on record, you can't get things very loud on wax, but we did it as loud as we could, and the whole side of the album is heartbeat, and we just shout on top of it. <laughs> and, and McLuhan says, but that's putting it in another medium. You don't have to listen to your own heartbeat when you put it in another medium. <laughs> he said, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, he says, oh, uh, wait, sorry, I, I'm, I'm reading this right now. That's all uh, right. Yeah, so he goes, wow, they are, this is just a fascinating conversation. The whole thing is on YouTube if anyone wants to eventually check that out. But uh, Ono says uh, that 
they were uh, maybe helped by being together there with their heartbeats. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I can imagine um, that, that, yeah, listening to your own heartbeat as it's beating probably would, might would drive you insane. And anyway. thinking you're going to put that on a record and you're John Lennon right. and Yoke. I mean, they must yeah. have just been just so far out there. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, before the time. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today, man. This has been great. Uh, I'm going to leave right now and drive 13 hours to Hilton Head. So Toby's uh, going on vacation. <laughs> I'm going on Wait, vacation. 13 hours? Yeah, what? I live in Champaign, Illinois, so I got a, I got a long drive. I'll probably, well, I won't drive Hey, Champaign, but, Illinois, yeah. Champaign, Urbana, we got Polyvinyl Records out there. Oh, yeah. They just put out Anamanaguchi's latest album, uh, USA. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so make sure to stop by Papa Dell's for some pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I live right right by there. Uh, the, there's a nice. Huh, how did you get with that label? I think uh, Polyvinyl. Yeah. Um, we met them in, I want to say, like 2018 or something. Yeah. Uh, they were working with, obviously, we've been fans of, of Polyvinyl bands for yeah. forever, like with the whole emo world, you know. Um, but uh, they were working with our buddies, Caro Caro Bonito from England. And um, we met them at a festival and got along really well. My dad was making jokes with the like label head and stuff. <laughs> they were having a good time. And uh, yeah, we took a meeting in New York City and we were like, yeah, we have this record called USA. That's about this kind of like social tension that we felt sort of growing. And, and instead of like, basically this is our move away from endless fantasy and towards, you know, uh, paying attention to our own lives and how they've been shaped. And yeah. so, uh, they were fascinated by that thought and, uh, they were like, yeah, we want to put that record out. That's so right. That's very cool. Yeah. All right, Peter. Well, we really appreciate in, your time, man. Uh, hopefully we'd love to have you back sometime. Talk more. Dude. Yep. Yeah. We got to do that Weezer podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Toby for, and Matt, you guys are awesome. For sure. Uh, I'm so glad this got to go down. Yeah. So yeah. sweet. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your day. Right, dude. Take care, buddies. Bye-bye. All right, Matt. I really do have to go. Okay, you want you, we can wrap. That was plenty long. Reba but, uh, just arrived at my house from you know she drove two and a half hours. She's watching our dogs and hanging out here and uh, for a week by herself at our house. So well, you can nice. go, but first that uh, you had to reflect on that interview. <laughs> How'd you find that? It, a lot of it was over my head. And it, was, it, it was fascinating and interesting. We went all over the place. What yeah, about yourself? Kinda- well, I mean, it, it was hard to get bearings from such abstract topics. I th- I, yeah. I felt like, but I love that. I yeah, mean, I just I know. you know, I understand that there's many uh, open threads on that and broad things and all over time and space. But right. that's that's kind of just a tour of the mind of somebody who I mean that you could you know what I mean. His mind's yeah. just all over the place. So I uh, think that he just knows something uh, about everything. He's just moving quickly and. and and tapping into yeah. information, memories, yeah, a, he, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's cool. a different wiring of a of a brain, but it's all very self directed, interest driven to yeah, a bunch of curious. fascinating, yeah. you know, interesting things. So I like to try to keep up and jump around with people like that. But I enjoyed it. But thank you for doing it and finding Peter because I, I think you found that thing or f- tracked him down or whatever. But I just thought it was neat somebody who thinks so abstractly and does the same type of music and that all all that kind of stuff all right see y'all see y'all